Yes, I like it when you speak back to me. It's not rude. Not to me. I'm not, I'm not a crusty old church leader, trust me. Can anyone guess how old I am? No, but thank you so much. You took many years off, off my real age. Someone else have a guess? Don't be shy. No, but thank you. You took some more years off. Keep going. Higher. It's like an auction. Higher. Do I hear 55, 55, 55, 56, 57, 58? Anyone? No, not 60. I'm almost there. I'm 58. And uh, the topic that I'm talking to you about today on marriage, because I know you're in a relationship series, is not only honestly deep in my heart, it's one of been my life goals and missions to actually have a very healthy, strong relationship with my bride of 37 years who's sitting over here, Sue. Yes, she's very lucky to have me, isn't she? No, actually, it's the other way around. I'm very lucky to have her. And so a, a couple of things. I know you're in a, in a series around um, relationships and I, I'm very privileged to come and share around marriage because I came from a very dysfunctional, broken family. So I don't know my father at all. who is now deceased. Don't have any memory of him whatsoever. I grew up in a home with just my mother who was very dysfunctional and had a lot of life issues and I have three siblings and then I met this incredible woman at a camp, actually, and she was totally sunburnt, looked like a lobster. <laughs> so you know when people say, oh, what, what, what drew, drew you to, towards your spouse? When did you first meet? And I, I got an easy story. Well, she was glowing and it was daylight. If she was so burnt and so red, that's my eyes just was automatically drawn to her than anyone else because she was literally red, red. And uh, that's how we met. But here's, here's what I want you to know before we, we, we go to the teaching today, is because I came from a broken, dysfunctional family, and I met this girl that was a good Church of Christ girl, grew up in the church, but her family had issues as well, right? It wasn't perfect. But then when we get married, we bring all that we are into the relationship, and it's not pretty, because we bring all our baggage, we bring all our dysfunction. And even though we're, we're Christian, it's not automatically, miraculously changed somehow. In fact, it gets highlighted when you enter into a long-term relationship and start living with someone else who, at first, you think is wonderful and can do no wrong. You know, it's called infatuation when you meet someone and you fall in love. But, you know, the scientific research tells us within three years those things that you thought were perfect and she was beautiful and couldn't do anything wrong, are three years into a marriage, all of a sudden become real annoying because they're not quite like you and you thought they would eventually become more like you and they thought the same of you and it causes a bit of conflict. And, and again, being Christian doesn't exempt us from that. So I'm telling you that because you know, Sue and I teach a lot about marriage but from our personal experience, not, not just from a spiritual point of view, which is very important, I'm not undermining that, but from a practical and we have made it work very well. We have a very close, happy, intimate relationship because we've been intentional about it. Intentionality around relationships is key. You, can, you know, if you want to have a good marriage, it's every little choice, every momental choice that you make through the day is what makes a difference. It's not the big decisions about where we live, what career we have, how many children we have, what church we go to. It's, you know, it's not the big stuff, which we think it is. 
It's actually, this is what science tells us, have you been a really good friend to your spouse today? Because if you haven't, it creates a whole lot of issues for you emotionally and relationally. So here's the question I'm going to pose to you because most of you are younger than me. Um, I'm 58. I can't tell you how old my wife is. That's rude. So I won't do that. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get her to come up in a few minutes' time, by the way. She can, she can tell a bit of our story. But do we need marriage today? Now, here, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to be as honest and as direct as I can. So it's not a typical sermon from a pastor. I want to be raw and real if we can get there. Do we need to actually get married today? So a number of things have happened in recent human history in the West that was new, that never took place in previous centuries or millennia. So one of them was what's called no-fault divorce. So if you get married and you're not getting along with your spouse, in the late 1970s, in most Western countries, they made it easier for you to get divorced legally. Prior to that moment, you had to show there was some infidelity or there was some irreconcilable difference that was causing um, trauma and difficulty in your relationship. It was very hard to get a divorce prior to the late 70s. But, you know, in Canada, the US, Australia, most Western nations, UK, they came up with this legal idea of you didn't have to prove who was the person at fault, for instance, that had an affair to get a divorce. You just had to say, we're not getting along. So that became, that's become quite normal today, right? So statistically, in Australia, 50% of marriages fail, end in divorce, within 15 years. Because it's so easy to actually walk out the door if you feel it's not going well, or you feel you've got better options, or you, you know, you're in pain and someone else that you know in your world shows you a bit of interest, or you find yourself attracted to someone else. If, if you don't have this sense of commitment, this long-term commitment, then illegally it's easy. So there's one thing. Here's another thing, which is really interesting, that cohabitation before you get married seems to be, well, it feels a bit normal these days, right? Whereas, again, before the 70s, it probably wasn't as normal. But, you know, that sort of thing, can, I, can we live together before we get married? And then, of course, what often happens is some people never marry, but they cohabitate. Um, and it's almost celebrated or feels like, what's wrong with that? By the way, <coughs> pardon me, statistically what they don't tell you is people who cohabitate never want to marry. Their separation rate is much higher than those who legally get married. They don't tell you that, that the media doesn't tell you that, but that's statistic fact in Australia. Um, stats also reveal that people on low incomes choose not to marry for a couple of reasons. One of them is... Um, they think it's very expensive to get married, which of course it is. What's the average wedding cost these days? Does anybody know? Statistically in Australia, thirty to 50000 people spend on their weddings, right? So that's a lot of money. So people on lower incomes look at that and think, why would we bother getting married? We'll just live together, have our kids. Politicians don't have the same ethical boundaries and liberalism that drives a lot of decision making particularly in our country today and, and in other western nations they don't reflect any sort of christian values liberalism pushes the boundaries for self-expression in sexuality and in gender and and so we've when you think of all the other issues that come up around the broader culture that you and i sit in as people who follow jesus 
the culture around us doesn't share the commitment or the, uh, the belief systems that we have around marriage. But I don't, I'm not sure that all Christians know why we think marriage is a good idea. We know it's in the Bible. So we, in our reading today, actually put up that slide for our reading, Hebrews uh, 13 verse 4. And to give you a little bit of context, um, I chose a paraphrase called the Message Translation because it brings out a bit more emotion um, I know it's not technically correct as a translation, by the way. Um, I teach exegesis and hermeneutics, so I used to teach how to choose a Bible translation. But what I like about this paraphrase is it pulls out a bit of feeling that the, the Greek actually has in the words here. So it's not, it's not a direct translation, but the concept of, you know, God does draw a line. There, there is this thing where God says... Sexual relationships are designed for a marriage covenant, lifelong relationship. And if you do anything with your sexuality outside of that, there are consequences to that. There's not, it's not necessarily just God judging you, but the way he is designed for humans to live out their lives, including uh, the sexual component of our lives, he's designed it to take place within a marriage relationship. And so... I'm going to explore a couple of like emotional and psychological things around the breakdown of a marriage or a relationship that probably we don't always think about or talk about in church, but it's still part of the system that God has designed, even though it may not be listed in the Bible. And that's why God says here, we, everyone should honour marriage. Every one of us should do it. And in fact, we should guard against falling into a romantic sexual relationship that's outside of marriage because there are consequences to it. And it's not God's judgment. It's not like God saying, I'm going to get you now, you broke the rules. It's the fact that he's set up a way that it works best. It's his expression. And so it's, we just don't realise that when we are influenced by the culture, you know, when you're on Instagram or you're on Snapchat or you're on, um, what's the video one? I keep forgetting. You see, I'm 58, 58. Do you think of 58-year-olds on TikTok? I don't have time for TikTok or whatever it's called, right? But, you know, those al- let me tell you something. Those algorithms will send you things that actually you've watched because something's attractive, like a person's attractive or you like how they look. And so that algorithm is going to keep feeding you that stuff and your eyes... What you watch creates this ideology in your head and in your heart of what you think the perfect spouse might should look like, act like, be like. And that's not reality. As most of you will know, if you think around it for just five, ten minutes, social media gives us a polished version. It's not true. No one lives in that space and looks and acts like that 24-7. And you know when you get some social media influencers that will sort of show themselves without makeup or when they first get up in the morning and you go, oh my gosh, they look just like me. In fact, they look worse than me at 5 o'clock in the morning, right? That's when you come to church at 5 a.m. next week when you lose a bit of sleep. So we're getting all this stuff from our culture, but it's actually not true. It's not something that we, anyone can actually embrace that beauty, perfection, No one can live there, not even those people that look like they are. They can't do it. So Hebrews 13.4, where God says, honour marriage, which, by the way, in the Greek, literally means it has a great price. To honour something, um, if Paul wrote this, which we think he did, 
he's saying here this 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 idea of giving yourself fully sexually to another human being is a great price and that's why it's in marriage that's why it shouldn't happen outside so biblical old English language or Greek words around fornication, adultery. So any sexual expression that happens outside of a marriage relationship, they're the words that the Bible um, uses. And so we have this concept that it should be honoured or a great price or other translations rightly from the Greek use the word precious. Marriage is precious. There's something unique. It should be esteemed and protected and guarded. Because there are consequences if we come outside of that. So I'm asking the question, why do we need marriage? So here's a few questions coming up on the screen for you. Question number one. Why does God say in Hebrews 14 verse 3, at least in the paraphrase of the message translation, I draw a line for um, casual sex or illicit sex. Why would God say that? Why would he, you know, in maybe more formal translation... It says that, um, you know, the sexually or moral will be judged. Well, here's something that I want you to know from my experience over 37 years, and that is your heart, your emotions are a terrible decision maker. Let me say that again. Your heart, your emotional side is a very bad decision maker. Now, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but I would guarantee... Many of us in this room have fallen in love with someone and then fallen out of love with someone because our hearts actually are quite deceptive and what we think the other person, this is part of the issue, can give us. So really often our emotions when it comes to infatuation or romantic notions, they can actually deceive us because we think that other person's going to fulfill us or make a difference to us. We're not thinking about them. We're thinking about ourselves. So part of the challenge here is why God draws this line, to use this phrase, is that feelings are fleeting. And if we express ourselves fully or vulnerably to another human being before we make a lifelong commitment, you can fall in and out of love so quickly. Feelings come and go, even in a marriage relationship. Sometimes you can feel very close to your spouse. Other times you feel very separated. Emotions is not something that you build a lifelong relationship on. You need much more than that. Now, emotions are part of it. But if that's your driving choice decision-making factor, is how you feel about someone, then you're going to hit some rocky waters pretty quickly at some stage. You're definitely going to hit them because most of our emotions when we first meet someone is infatuation. This idea of wow. You know, when I first saw Sue and she was totally lobster red sunburn, I had the wow moment. You know, like Adam when he saw Eve, he goes, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He went, wow, in Hebrew. That's an amazing Hebrew poetry statement in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. But he's, he's effectively saying, well, in all of creation, I have never seen anyone like that, right? And we often do have those moments, but it's got to take more than that, that infatuated moment to build a lifelong relationship, particularly a healthy lifelong relationship. So you, intentionally you can't trust your feelings because one of the ch- challenges is they can be a disguise. Your feelings at being attracted to someone because you think, 
as Jerry Maguire famously said, you complete me. You seen Jerry Maguire? Yeah? You've got to, probably got to be over 35 to see that film now, actually. Come to think of it. So that, that concept of they complete me, how self-centred is that? Right? That's, not, that's actually not a full picture of what love is. If you think the other person is going to complete you or make you feel like you're the only person in the world and, you know, you've got all this emotion and adrenaline and, and endorphins running through your brain, through your heart, through your blood system, your heart jumps out of your chest. We need those moments, but that's not enough because sometimes that's your insecurity saying, I feel defective. And really, you bring your insecurities into a relationship unless you deal with your insecurities and the other person brings their insecurities. So effectively what happens is when people get married, you have two insecure and two immature people coming together and thinking they're going to live happily ever after. And that's not how it happens unless there's intentionality at dealing with yourself. You can't change anyone else. I can't change Sue. She can't change me. But I can work on who I am and she can work on who she is. But the immaturities come out, the insecurities come out and often the attraction we think we had for someone is actually a disguise of how deficient we actually feel personally. We, don't, we think we need someone else to be happy, for example. Second question, what is love? I mean, is it this attraction, infatuation? Is it about romance? You know, is it, um, what's that show called? Um, Married at First Sight? Well, what an atrocious picture of relationships, right? And I know there's a whole lot of other ones, and again, at 58, I couldn't be bothered watching them, but I'm sure some people watch them. I think it's the most highly rated show in Australia, actually, um, Married at First Sight. But well, it's, it's not an accurate picture of what it takes a relationship to last and to be happy. And f- is, it fulfill- is it self-fulfillment? Is love sacrifice? So, is love about me ministering, serving, sacrificing to the other person, so my spouse, or is love about you feeling that you're loved and your needs are met and you're happy? Which is it? So here's the problem. Our broader culture is telling us all this stuff about what love is when you watch a love movie or a love, love story. But when, as Christians, we know... From experience, in fact, we have a model of love through God and through Jesus that is nothing like the culture that tells us a definition of love, where love is more self-centered. Our understanding of love is it's sacrificial, that it brings out the best in someone else. It's laying down your life for someone else, to nurture them, protect them, to help them grow and mature. It's not about you, your needs being met, but that's what our culture around us tells us all the time. It's about our need. And here's one, of the, here's one of the challenges, I think, is we think we have to find the right person, at least from my skippy Anglo culture, right? We've been, I mean, I, when, I, when I was, you know, 17 in youth group at church, just become a Christian, everyone in the youth group had a list of the type of person they wanted to marry. I don't know if that still happens. Don't put up your hand if you've got a list because you won't like what I've got to say about it. So, you know, people, they wanted, you know, a certain hair colour, a certain height, 
person had this career, had much this much money, or lived in this area, or was from this type of family, had this type of character. You know, the, the girls that have big, the big muscles for the guys, or you know, beautiful brown eyes, or you know, whatever it was. Now, here's the problem: from my 30 years of being married to the one person, is it's the wrong list. Because it doesn't matter what my wife looks like, acts like. What really matters is what I'm like. Is it worth her living with me for 50 years? That's the better list to write. Why would someone give up their life to live with you? That's the list. Has anyone ever told you that? You're probably not so happy you came to church this morning. I'm sorry. But (laughs) if you have a list like that, I suggest you tear it up, throw it in the bin and write a list about your insecurities and immaturities that God's asking you to change. Because that's the commitment that it takes to actually sacrificially live with someone else who's very different to you. That's the commitment Jesus had to us. What does it say in Ephesians? He did not consider himself equal with God. He didn't have his list about who he was. He tore it up and became one of us. So part of the issue is, again, I'm I'm trying to be as real as I can. And by the way, if you want to chat to me after the service, that's fine. I'm quite happy to chat one-on-one. But here's the problem is, if you think there's a right person out there, you're going to be waiting a heck of a long time. You know why? Because you're not the right person either. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. So how do two imperfect people make it work in a healthy and functioning way? By working on themselves and laying down their lives for their spouse. That's really what marriage is. So here's question three. I'm going to keep going very quickly. I want you to understand emotional bonding. And again, there's something we don't talk about in church. I'm not sure why. But when you, when you meet somebody and you have feelings for them, what happens is you, bit by bit, open up a little bit more of your heart. You share a little bit more of who you really are, what you really think about things. And you feel that sense of vulnerability. How much do I share? How much of my life do I invite them into my emotional space? How, how close do I let this person come? And they do the same to you. Now, psychologists, I've got a counselling degree. Psychologists say... When that process happens, you know, over six, 12 months, when you, you know, go and start going on dates, you start spending time together, is it's like a piece of barbed wire. You know barbed wire that, you know, they use on fences to keep cattle in and, and sheep and stuff? It's like the bit of barbed wire goes from your heart to their heart and it embeds, it, it embeds itself. The little prongs at the end of the barbed wire embed themselves. That's the, you need that human connection where you're actually drawn close to each other and psychologically, emotionally, you actually want to be with each other, right? You know that feeling where you just can't stand to be without each other? I used to keep Sue up until 2 a.m. when we were dating because I worked at night, she worked during the day. I'd never see her. That's another story. She's got to forgive me about that, but anyway. But that's the type of bonding, right? This is... This is the barbed wire between us. Now, that's good if you stay in a relationship with that person. You need, you need that type of depth of connection where you're so intertwined and vulnerable that, that that strength of emotion keeps you close and connected. But what happens if you separate or you have a fight or you don't really think you can get married to that person? You wake up one morning and go, 
what have I done? I, I don't know, I, all of a sudden I don't know why I saw in that person. We know what happens is when you separate or that relationship breaks down, the barbed wire that was, was connecting the two of you from heart to heart gets torn, it gets shredded out. And you, if you've split up in a relationship, you know the feeling. It's traumatic. It, it, it's, it's damaging. It takes, it takes months, sometimes years, to heal from that shredding that takes place as that barbed wire is ripped out of your heart. So this is one of the reasons why I think God says, don't play with sexuality outside of a relationship. Not because he's, you know, the judge sitting in the sky ready to get us when we break a law. It's because the way we're designed to work and connect relationally, emotionally, vulnerably, intimately, there's a cost to that if it breaks. It's painful. And in fact, you will take that pain into future relationships. And again, you know, Sue and I, we know from our experience and from helping other young couples year after year deal with their previous relationship baggage that they bring into their marriage. Now, I'm not saying don't connect, don't date. I'm not saying that. I'm not a prude. But what I'm saying is be very careful who you give your heart to. Because if it breaks, if the relationship is, it doesn't work, it's going to be very painful and for a long time. And you have to work through that. And it can actually influence the relationship you end up with for the rest of your life. You have to talk to them about it. You have to deal with it. You have to be open. And so these, I'm just throwing out some practical stuff here that the reason why God says honour marriage and don't play around before you get married is not that he's a prude, it's saying, hey, this is going to protect you. So it's called attachment theory, by the way. You can, there's lots of stuff you can read about it and look it up. All right, how am I going for time? Better keep going. So, Sue, why don't you come up and share... So we met on this church camp, actually. I was a new Christian. She was sunburnt red. And I was 15. Uh, she was a bit ahead of me. I won't say how far. She now tells people that she was older than me. I say was. I've caught up. It's a miracle. Yes, yeah, so when we met, um, I had very severe burning and... Uh, they suggested that I not go out. We were at a family church camp and they said, no, you can't go to the beach again. You need to sit under a tree and uh, stay in the shade. And so all the young people would go off to the beach and there was I having to stay at camp under the, the, um, the trees. So Greg would just sit with me and be with me and we talked for hours and then I'd be on kitchen duty and setting tables, you know, for the whole camp. There, there probably would have been about 150 of us and uh, Greg would be trailing behind me, helping me set the tables and do everything. He, he just did not leave my side and um, um, in, my, in my own family, my parents had tried to have children back in the day and... Uh, they weren't able to and my mother had gone to the top three specialists in Sydney and they had said, look, we're really sorry, uh, you're unable to have children, you have an infantile womb, you will never carry children. My father went out and bought a new car because he was devastated, he just went and bought a new car. My mother prayed and she consistently prayed for years and... Um, 
they tried to adopt and that fell through. Anyway, God blessed them with me. It was a miracle. And so on all my birth cards, it says, to the miracle baby. And so when I was born, my mother set me aside and said, um, you will not be a pastor, but be a pastor's wife or a missionary's wife or a Christian worker's wife. There were those three things. And so in my heart growing up, I always thought, I'm going to be the wife of a, a minister. I'm going to serve. And I gave my heart to the Lord at 12, and that was just in my heart. So when Greg came along and he was very, you know, his behaviour was just very dysfunctional, I just said, even though I, I really was attracted to him, I, firstly, he was too young, so I was setting him up with other girls. And um, also, I, in my head, I just um, believed that, you know, God was, I was going to be the wife of a missionary. So, of course, a missionary did ask me to marry him, actually. And I said, yes, I would marry him because I thought God had sent him. But then when he went to hold my hand the next day after I'd said, yes, I would marry him, oh, I just didn't want to hold his hand. It just was not – there was no, nothing physical there. So then I had to go to God and say, God, you've given me this man that wants me to marry him – but there was no attraction and uh, I had to work that through anyway and um, I, had to, I had to go back to him and say no. And yet there was a physical attraction to Greg and so for, for four and a half years I wrestled with God and after four and a half years we actually married five and a half years later. But getting married is one of the most important decisions of your life and the biggest discipleship tool in your life um and so that that is why it's so important who you marry and uh, we're happily married so when, when sue said that um you know i was quite dysfunctional i was i was i'd lived in a boy's home i was a ward of the state uncontrollable my mother couldn't control me i didn't finish school i got kicked out of school i got picked up from uh by the police for uh, living on the streets, like running away from home. And this is a good Christian girl, right, brought up in a Christian home. So you can imagine when I said to her, would you marry me? What did you say? Definitely not. Not. That's right. So really what you see in us today, uh, we, we are genuinely still in love and close, but it's because I worked, I took responsibility for who I was and asked God to change me. I had to deal with my stuff. And because I didn't know my father, didn't have a good relationship with my mother, one of the things when I became a Christian, I was determined that I would become the type of husband and father that I could see in the Bible, but I'd never seen in person. Like, you know, I didn't have a role model myself. So rather than being frustrated or disappointment or carrying a wound that I, my dad didn't stay or had a relationship with me ever, like I've never met with him. Rather than being bitter about that, I use that to say, right, if I get married, I'm going to stay married. Now, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I had no idea. And I was, I was going to church. I was attending relationship talks. And, but I didn't find them very helpful, to be quite frank. I, I just didn't find them very – they were a bit too super spiritual. And I needed some practical help because I knew I was dysfunctional, but I wanted to stay married to Sue until the day I die and be faithful to her and also to be a good father. So here's one thing that I did as a brand new Christian. I'd get up at four in the morning. I worked in a, um, 
a commercial bakery. We used to cook all the food for the universities um, when we were first met. And so on the, I used to finish work around 2.30 in the afternoon because I started so early. On the way home, going through the city on, on, a, on a tram, I'd stop at St Paul's Cathedral, not that I was particularly Anglican or anything, but just to pray, God, I think I've met this girl that I want to marry, but I know I'm not. I'm so far from imperfect. Will you? How I would pray every day. I would stop there on the way home from work and pray about what I should do around our relationship. The other thing I did was, again, because I knew nothing about how to be a husband or a father. As a new Christian, I read every Bible story and Bible teaching around being a good husband and a father. So all, I read narratives, so this, you know, like the stories of Joseph. I read, I read um, the commands about Ephesians 5, about husbands lay down your life for your wife as Christ loved the church. I, want, I, I knew I needed help. Because I was determined that we would have a good family. And now I have three other siblings. All of them have broken relationships. Some of them have children to people they don't ever see. They don't see their own children or the person that gave them that child. Out of the, out of my, out of the four of us in the family, I'm the only one really that's got a healthy, functioning relationship with our children and with my wife. But it's because I worked on who I was and because of her commitment to actually make sure that God wanted her to marry me. So tell them a story about when we, you eventually said yes to me. By the way, I'm the king of rejection because I would ask her to marry me every second day and she'd say no. I just took no for an answer. Right? I just don't take no for an answer. So I just kept, kept going. So, you know, you keep living life and... I had gone to Sydney to care for my grandmother um, because my aunt had had gone away on holidays and I'd taken my mum, so the two of us were looking after my grandmother. And uh, there was this woman in... My grandmother was in a nursing home and we'd be there during the day and there was a woman next, next door to my grandmother and I just felt that was going to be me if I, if I didn't get married and so I was asking God and I had a little locket on and I had a picture of Greg in my locket even though I'd said to him no 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 and I just felt God say um, marry Greg and I'm like God you know and yet I still could see that he wasn't perfect but I, I said God you know is 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 that right you know am I to marry him and you know it was like four and a half years on by this stage and anyway, so I went back to Melbourne and I went to his house. He was working in the restaurant by this stage. I went to his house and I waited for him to get home from work. He got home about 11 o'clock, 11.30. And I said to him, I'm here and I, I want to marry you. And guess what I said? No. <laughs> it's too late. I've been asking you for four and a half years. You'll change your mind in two days' time. No. I'm, I felt God was going to call me. I started working for Teen Challenge on the streets of St Kilda, you know, with the prostitutes, the addicts. I said, that's where my life's going. I'm, I'm sorry, you had your chance. You had four and a half years, you kept saying no. I can't risk you saying no to me again. I wasn't very smart, was I, by the way? <laughs> just, just throwing it out there. I don't know how I got home that night because I cried all the way home um, 
just saying, God, what, you know, I've lost the man of my dreams. That was, yeah. Oh, is that all? Do you want to say anything? <laughs> well, then, then I started praying. Every, you know, I'd take my, my Bible to, to work and during lunchtime I'd be there. Um, I, was, I was constantly like, oh, God, what have I done? You know, I've lost him. And six weeks later, um, on uh, the Queen's birthday, I get a call in the morning and my dad, my dad said, um, this is the days when you had, you know, a home phone, you didn't have mobiles. Um, There's a call for you. And I said, who is it? He said, Greg. And I knew three Gregs. And I said, my Greg? And he said, yes. I ran to the phone and Greg said, hi, there's a movie on in town. Would you want to go? Um, it's, a, it's an old film, Casablanca. And I, I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> Why would I say no? I was like six weeks saying, God, you know, I've lost the man of my dreams. I said, no. Anyway, half an hour later, he, he sweet talked me around. And then that night, I said to him, so are we getting married? And he said, we've just got back together after all this time. And I said, yes, but I know, I just know in my heart that God's put us together Anyway, not long after that, we got engaged. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. clap, clap, <laughs> clap, clap. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. She doesn't, she doesn't like public speaking, so I had to ask her to do it this morning. So let me finish with, we're telling you a part of our story because we're just real people, right? I think sometimes you think, oh, you know, Pastor Greg's coming to speak. I'm just like anybody else, right? The, word, the title pastor doesn't exempt me from wrestling with the key stuff that we all wrestle with. And in fact, I've got this sort of unwritten rule in my head. I never speak on a subject that I haven't had to deal with myself. Because it has theology and spirituality, the way we live our faith, has to be embedded into our lives, our everyday, ordinary, Monday, Wednesday life, right? Not just what we do on Sunday. And so we, we, we're honestly just real people like anyone else. But here's what the commitment I made before God that I would, we would never separate. We would never get divorced. Now, we weren't perfect when we first got married, nowhere near close. But I had to learn, and another day I could tell you a whole story around how that happened. But I had to learn how to deal with myself, not anybody else, not put it on her. I knew I was broken and dysfunctional. I was a Christian, but I was dysfunctional. But I, was, I had this absolute commit and drive that I was going to have a healthy marriage. Not be like my mum and dad, not be like my parents. You know, we have this internal phrase, Sue and I, uh, we're not going to be like, we call them the dining dead. You know when you go to a restaurant and there's an, old couple, an older couple sitting in the table near you and they have their meals, they never say a word to each other, you know, for an hour, an hour and a half? We're not that way, right? And we were, we were focused, even, in, even when I was much more immature, we were focused that we were going to be a close, connected, healthy couple. We didn't know how we were going to get there as a destination, but we were both determined that we would do whatever it takes to get there. So what you see today, you see the result of 37 years of marriage, but with that attitude. We are going to be a healthy, strong, committed couple. And that means it goes into our children because, you know, my siblings are struggle. 
See, I've got this theory. Whatever you don't resolve, you're destined to repeat. So when I look at my siblings, they're repeating the same brokenness that they experienced as a child like I did because they have never resolved it. And you repeat it unconsciously. It's not as if you're thinking about it, but your dysfunction and brokenness and insecurity comes out and it destroys the person you've married or the relationship that you've got. And so, you know, there's no magic wand here. This is intentionality. I don't like using the word work. When people say, oh, marriage is work, it's hard work, it's hard work. I hate it when they say that because it, it, it takes intentionality. It, it's not work as in um, this sense of I have to do this and no matter what the other person does. It's, for me, it's more about I know that God wants us to have a healthy, functioning, strong, romantic, close relationship. We're not just going to coexist in the same house. That's not God's intention. But it's not on her to get there. It's on me to do what anything that I can do to get us both there. And if you both think that way and both begin to work on who you are and your weaknesses, even now if you're not married, you can work on who you are right now and become the person that's worth being married to. Right? That, that's the type of attitude. So let's finish, finish up with these three things. Why, why does marriage make a difference? Do we need marry, ma- marriage? I said at the start. Well, from my life experience, yes. Because I see I have you know, three healthy, functioning adult children because they grew up in a home that was safe, secure, close, intimate. I was not like my father. I was not like my mother. Well, I was at times, but that's another story. I have this little saying, sometimes I open my mouth and my mother comes out. That's for another day as well. But anyway, so, but you have to be, it's generational, right? If you grew up in a family where you think it was dysfunctional or mum and dad were not close or there were issues in the home, who's going to break the cycle if you don't? And in fact, if you don't break the cycle, you'll repeat it. And really, as Christians, we have the best role model of sacrificial love and working on our own insecurities and immaturities, right? So here's a couple of things on the screen. Number one, marriage. Why marriage make a difference? It protects your future. If you don't have multiple partners that you sleep with before you get married, it's so much easier. And if you, if you have slept with other people and you're not married, if you stop doing that from today, it'll make your marriage so much easier in the future. Because you'll take all that emotional baggage, all that history, all that brokenness, all that emotional bonding tearing, you're going to take that into your future relationship. You underestimate its power now. But when you get married, it comes up and it causes insecurity in a relationship and you cannot run away from it. You have to face it and deal with it with your new partner. So what you feel with your heart now, what you watch with your eyes now matters. You are the sum total of every decision you make. So if you want a healthy and strong marriage relationship when you get married, start now. There's no mystery here. Be the sort of person that someone would want to spend the rest of their life with. So number two, the depth. So is marriage just a piece of legal piece of paper? You know, Sue and I have a marriage certificate from the Australian government. Is that all it is? Why wouldn't we just cohabitate? Because the commitment that it takes to stand before family and friends 
and for us as Christians before God and say, I'm going to forsake everyone else to be with you for the rest of my life. To do that publicly and to have that depth of commitment, you don't get that in cohabitation. And again, as Christians, it has a whole other level of meaning because we believe God designed us to live that way. And so the, the level and depth of commitment, this is what it does. If you have that sort of commitment, a legal marriage, then it sets you up to be truly trustworthy with one another and truly intimate and vulnerable with each other. That's what it takes to build a lifelong relationship. Trust, vulnerability and intimacy. Now you can live with someone and if you're not getting along, you start thinking, well, I don't have to stay in this relationship. I don't, have to, I don't have to be committed to that person. I don't like the way they spoke to me. I don't like the way they treated me. You don't get that trust, intimacy and vulnerability that's required to have sacrificial love, which is really what marriage is all about. It's about laying down your life for someone else. So the depth of commitment, um, that's, the, that's the issue, right? And the last one here, which Sue, Sue actually mentioned it, my maturity and... My discipleship has grown more out of the relationship I have with Sue than any other sermon or history of going to church meetings I've ever had. There's, there's a, a church pastor here in Melbourne. He's got this, in, this little phrase, so it's not mine, but I stole it. Uh, marriage is the greatest discipleship tool God has. Let me say that again. Marriage is the greatest discipleship tool that God has. Because when you marry someone, you know all the verses about grace, mercy, you know, we're singing, we're singing some of the songs this morning, oh Lord, you know, I surrender. Well, we sang that this morning. I don't know if you're aware, we sang that. Then you go home with your spouse and you have a bit of a tiff. You're not really surrendering there, are you? You're going to have a go. And you're not happy and you're going to let them know. Right? True? So here's part of the problem. We separate Everything the Bible teaches about grace, mercy, forgiveness, long-suffering, sacrifice, we separate it from a marriage relationship. We think, we think, oh, that's the spiritual stuff we do, you know, forgiveness, mercy, love. But when I'm at home, my gosh, you know, wasn't happy with the fried rice, right? Or she's not happy because you've got to mow the lawn. And then love, mercy, grace, where does that go? Straight out the window. Is that not right? So here's what I've learned is the best place that God disciples you is in your relationship. When you have to lay down your opinion, your feelings, your hurt, your offence to love someone else consistently, faithfully, sacrificially, we call that discipleship. And if you, if you, if you allow God to disciple you through a marriage relationship, you become much more mature and it will come out in your children and then your grandchildren. It's generational. You want to make a difference in how your family history has handled marriage or relationships? Then make a commitment in your heart to do it right and to be, ask God to disciple you. Because if you, by the way, if you ask him, he will. So maybe think about it before you ask him. Right? If you're going to pray that prayer, he'll take you up on the offer. But marriage is the greatest discipleship tool. Because who else are you with 24-7? Nobody. The person you are most 
spend the most time with is your spouse. And God's going to use it if you allow him to grow you. Thanks for listening today. Let me pray for you. Father God, none of us are perfect. And Lord, to live in relationship with another human being in the same home, to have a marriage covenant, and for all of the stuff that comes out of us, Lord, all our dysfunction or insecurity, our immaturity, and and Lord, for that to lead to a breakdown of relationship. We know that's not your plan. And God, we can be almost too religious around this whole topic of how do we live with someone, give ourselves in vulnerability to someone else and live with them for all of our lives. When there are moments where we feel so close, there are moments where we feel so distant or it's not working or moments where we feel like it's, it's incredibly working so well. Father, I just pray, Lord, that as Sue and I have shared today, every single person would have heard your voice, your correction, your conviction, your direction for their life. They'll live out their narrative journey under your watchful eye and through your Holy Spirit different to us. But Lord, we all need you in our relationships. Help us to be not so religious that our spiritual lives are devoid or divorced from our romantic lives. And not just for ourselves, but maybe for our children. Even if we're not currently married or don't have children, for the future of actually setting up a new family narrative in history that celebrates the goodness of God because we're living out the gospel right at home. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.